0: Here we are. This episode is very special. It comes to you from two members of Florida's healthcare coalitions. We have Lee Wesley. She comes to you from the North Central Florida Healthcare Coalition and Champ, Eric Anderson, who comes from the Northeast Healthcare Coalition. These two reached out to me, director for a Center for Independent Living, to get together to speak to their members who are comprised of first responders, healthcare providers, emergency management professionals, people who work in assisted living facilities or skilled nursing homes or other community-based organizations like Centers for Independent Living to talk to their members about how we can meet the access and functional needs for people with disabilities, how their members can get better connected with Centers for Independent Living and reach the community of people with disabilities to better serve. And through our collaborations over the last few years, We've presented at the Northeast Healthcare Coalition Summit. We have held virtual lunch and learn series for multiple healthcare coalitions. We've hosted emergency management expos where we invited participants who are people with disabilities to come and learn from emergency management professionals, to receive information from other community-based organizations that are tabling at that event and really to just get informed and to collaborate and to learn from one another and so here through that collaboration we decided to do a mini-series podcast for their members to be able to get our message out there to more people in a different platform it really speaks to eric and lee's innovation and creation and inspiration to really get this message out and i'm looking forward to seeing where our journey together takes us it certainly has been one that we've all learned a lot from, and most importantly, has been one that we have really helped people who are the most vulnerable to better prepare, respond, and recover from disasters. So enjoy the conversation with Eric and Lee. Well, okay, and welcome. I am very excited about this episode because we wouldn't have any episodes if it wasn't for our guests here today. They are the ones who are largely responsible for approving this mini-series podcast that we're doing right here. They have the creativity, the innovation, and collaboration that we've had in the past to put their trust in us, to come up with a platform to discuss all different kinds of things related to disabilities and meeting access and functional needs before, during, and after storms. We've got a pretty good track record so far in terms of collaboration and history, and we're gonna get into all of that. I first wanna start with talking with both of you about how you all landed in the field of emergency preparedness and how that maybe evolved and to land where you are at today. And Lee, I'd like to start with you if you don't mind about how did is it that you really came to become who you are today in the field that you're occupying?
1: So that's such an interesting story. Do you have a couple of hours? (laughs) I fell into this by accident. Um, I was a school teacher and then post 9-11, I started working in public health doing education staff education for in public health. Then post 9/11, money went into preparedness and I went to a hurricane shelter training and fell in love with the whole idea of preparedness and then ended up becoming a regional bioterrorism planner and trainer. Big title. Yeah. Um and for the Department of Health. So I spent 16 years working as a public health planner. And um, in that time, the Healthcare Coalition Program was born. And I was a charter member of the Northeast Florida Healthcare Coalition, which is one of the three that we now manage. That I was a charter member and was the first chair of the board of directors. And so I kind of feel like I've been with the coalition program from the beginning. And it's kind of my baby. And um, I just absolutely love it you know, there's so much benefit because we work to help prepare all of our partners. And then when things happen, like most recently with COVID, you see all of the benefit from all of that work over all those years. So, because our partners are so much better planned and able to respond and um, I feel fortunate that I'm a little bitty piece of all that preparedness.
0: You know, one of the things that as you unpack your history there and your pedigree in public health, I believe we connected when our first conversation, when we started talking about health inequities, health disparities, and I similarly come from a a field of public health and specifically with people with disabilities, I think we hit it right off the bat and started connecting on how people with disabilities tend to live shorter, sicker lives from preventable diseases and uh, all the different uh, you know, kind of things that tend to exist with people with disabilities, You know, three to five times more likely to have heart disease, twice as likely to have cancer, um, twice as likely to have diabetes or respiratory disease and all the social determinants of health and the inequities that exist there. And I feel like that was a really good connection and to build rapport with you and really good insight into how that field really applies to what you do. But I'm also interested in that you come from education. Um, I similarly was in public schools and teaching myself and wonder in the role that you do now, how does the skills that you learned as an educator come to bear in what you do?
1: I think um, I was an elementary school educator, primarily teaching kindergarten, second grade, you know, so the earlier years. And I think what you find is you have to really simplify messages. And when someone is in time of emergency or you know, disaster response, it's important to have a simplified message because when you're feeling overwhelmed, you can't grasp complex processes. So I think what I have brought to the table all of these years is taking what can be a complicated plan and really drilling it down to just the basic high points. And i think that works with any population and so i think simplifying things making it easy to follow easy to learn just you know making sure that you're training and always preparing people
0: i love that to me that's a that's an art in and of itself Um, i'm aware of a lot of very high deep thinkers that really have some amazing content and expertise but can't communicate it in a language that people can understand and act on and so you know, for you to really illuminate that, and that to me is really what health literacy is, is to be able to articulate something in a language that people can understand and act on. And I really appreciate how you said, especially when people are emotionally aroused, say in disasters and stressed out, that simplification of a complex message is very important. So thank you so much, Lee. Eric, how about you? How did you land in the, the position that you're at today? What was your trajectory?
2: Uh, well, I think I'm much like uh, Lee in her description of that many people that find their way into emergency management, emergency preparedness, trip their way into it. It's not a natural thing that you start taking in school, or it's become one now, but not when we started. Um, my background actually is as a traditional community planner, and I worked on comp plan amendments and map amendments for community planning. Um, but through working at the regional council, we have separate disciplines that work on specific things. So economic development, resiliency, emergency, ma- excuse me, emergency management. So it just happened to be that there. Uh, I've always been enamored by disasters uh, living in the Northwest with volcanoes and in the Midwest with tornadoes uh, and even going through my first hurricane as a young child it has always been a passion of mine. So all of a sudden you have planning and disaster related things that I can work on together. And it just was like this perfect nexus of my interest and foundational background for school. So for the last, I don't know, almost 10 years that has really been my focus, whether uh, in emergency management world and then through the healthcare coalition it really has allowed me and educated me on, aspects of healthcare and things that we can do to help prepare the healthcare sector and also have an understanding of how integrated the healthcare sector is to everything that we do in disaster response. Because uh, if we lose that healthcare sector during a major disaster, it is a huge hit to the community. And so those efforts that we can put forward now through planning, training, equipment, exercises, of, you know, really kind of keeps my interest and diversifies the things that we're doing in emergency management.
0: Absolutely, and and as you're saying all that, You know, living in different areas with different disasters, and now coming down to Florida, do these disasters tend to follow you? And would our best uh, form of uh, exercise be to ship you out of the state, and we will have a safe hurricane season? (laughs)
2: Let's just face it: you're not immune, no matter wherever you go. The question is, (laughs) is what's your threat and hazard, right? I will say the benefit of Florida is, at least with hurricanes, uh, you know, for lack of a better term, it's a a known event. You can see it coming, and you know when the time of year it's ripe. You know, on the West Coast, earthquakes and volcanoes. Unknown noticed events, you know, same like wildfire. So very different disaster types that we face.
0: That's right. That's right. Yeah, there is something to be said about pick your type of disaster, no matter where you live, uh, especially with the the changing climate that we have. It impacts everybody. And and that's the relevance of the topic that we're in here today. And before we dive into exactly what your roles are at each of the healthcare coalitions, I'm interested, and I I think this is a very important question. uh, And Lee, I'm going to throw this over to you. But what is your Why? What you're doing here is very, very tough, very difficult, a lot of pieces to it. Why do you do what you do?
1: I think, I mean, Eric said it before, it's a passion. Somehow it just gets into your blood and I just absolutely love what I do. And there is something to be said for, you know, when you go to work every day, if you're loving what you're doing, it's not really work. It's more fun and play. Um, but it's it's also a very serious and very relevant field to be in, and uh, the things that we do, no matter how small they may seem, do have the potential to accumulate and grow into a major impact for the entire community. And you know, Eric said a moment ago, um, when we have a disaster, if the healthcare system fails, you're not going to get that community back up and running. That's one of the the critical points to keeping a community going. And so the more we can prepare the healthcare system, and it can be something what is seemingly as minor as purchasing a spot cooler for a behavioral health center. Um, You know, in the scheme of the world, people might not think that is a big purchase, but that allows that particular community to continue to be served when times of disaster. So
0: um,
1: we do a lot of really big things we have lots of big trainings with big speakers, but we also do really small things too that have a great impact across the community as a whole. And so, for me, it's it's become a passion, and it's not work.
0: I love that what you said really resonates with me. Um, I think there is a saying that says, you know, safety and health is no small thing, but it is made up of small things. These little bits of things that we can do to ensure our safety, our well-being, and our health on a day-to-day basis might seem small during that day, but after a while, they stack and comprise a larger whole into what it is. And, and that's very important to, I think, always keep in mind, you know, the big picture, small picture of how this all goes together. So, Eric. Throwing this over to you, what's your why? Why are you into doing what you're doing? Both of you, it's very self-evident that you're inspired and passionate about what you do, but where, where would you say your why lies in all of this?
2: I think I've experienced being able to move the needle on preparedness through our programs and through those successes and seeing people improve and organizations improve, makes me feel good at what I do for my job. Also, the framework of the healthcare coalition really allows each individual healthcare coalition to operate programs and manage things that are specific to their local areas. So while there are some statewide initiatives that we implement, Leah and I, have the ability to implement programs that are relevant to our partners and relevant to our region. Hence why we're having this discussion here with you today, Tony. You know, we, we started off on this initial, uh, let's have a conversation with Centers for Independent Living to talk about disasters and disability, but through that one little initiative, it has blossomed into larger podcast reaching out to our other region three healthcare coalitions and now i think you're seeing also uh, some experiences with other healthcare coalitions in the state so i think a lot of these little ideas that lee and i have the ability to put out there have started to bear fruit and uh, through multiple sets of programs and even through an example of this uh, podcast series is how we're being able to start moving the needle so i'm really happy to feel like we're succeeding in areas and doing something it would be a very different job if we'd beat our head against the wall every single day and just like you know <laughs> just had no traction in what we were trying to accomplish
0: inertia is a good thing momentum getting out of the gate and then just building off of that and letting it ride and i gotta thank you all for just being so open you were all our gatekeepers and the door was wide open for us to be able to roll through and i really appreciate that And. I think this is now a good place to really talk about what is the healthcare coalition and what is your role specifically in that? Eric, I'll go with you. I'll kind of change this up just a little bit, but uh, Eric, if this podcast reaches people that might not be super aware of what a healthcare coalition is and what its members are about and its mission, and then what your role is in there, uh, that would be wonderful.
2: Okay, well, well, I, I'm actually gonna turn to Lee to talk about the overarching uh, right. healthcare coalition side, but I'm happy to then to turn back to kind of okay. my, my role of training and exercises. Then. All right, Lee, jump ball.
1: Absolutely. So the Healthcare Coalition is a federal initiative through health and human, the Department of Health and Human Services. Um, the goal is to, for them to plant seed money to healthcare, the healthcare community, the broader healthcare community, not just hospitals. You know, when people think healthcare, they think hospitals yeah. um, or field nursing facilities and all. But the healthcare coalitions really are all encompassing of so many more sectors. Um, because as was said earlier, you know, healthcare is more than just providing care. Our membership has emergency management. We have infrastructure communities. We have educational facilities. There's all different types of members that come together. So the funding comes through um, health and human services down to the state of Florida, and we have a contract to manage our healthcare coalition for our 18 counties. Um, Here, we have three healthcare coalitions. It's the Northeast Healthcare Coalition, North Central, and CHAMP. So those three coalitions include all of our 18 counties. And through that work, as Eric said before, those particular organizations work within their communities to address needs and gaps within their communities. And then we all come together as an alliance, three coalitions together together, Working together to increase the sustainability of the healthcare system on a regional level.
0: I really love how you said healthcare doesn't always mean clinical, and and I do believe most people when they hear the word healthcare think of a clinical setting for it. And when we look at the epidemiological data that's out there, uh, whether it's NIH or whether it's the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation and those people that do you know the mining of big data, um, there's a. Pretty much a consensus that says, you know, 80% of all health outcomes, how long we live, resiliency to chronic diseases, and even quality of life and then safety happen outside the clinic. So, you know, those factors that are have to do with, you know, lifestyle, which could be preparedness, it could be the social determinants of health, which could be education, employment, access to housing, transportation, social supports and the built environment are so important and you know having a healthcare coalition like yourselves who are made up of partners who are clinical but also come from other fields that would touch on these other areas that impact the outcomes that happen outside the clinic is super wonderful. Thank you Lee. So Eric, talk to me about what your role is within the the healthcare coalition that you serve.
2: I, I serve as uh, the coordinator for the Northeast Florida Healthcare Coalition, uh, but then I am kind of uh, Lee's right-hand person for implementing training and exercise programs for uh, the coalition. So really my, our goal and one of Lee's goals with our planning is to identify gaps or vulnerabilities that we have in our communities, uh, whether that's planning issues, uh, equipment and gaps, training and exercise and education. So kind of the full suit of things that we do are to identify those gaps and then to put a framework in place, a training and exercise program in place to help people build plans, then test those plans, and then to exercise their staff and their plans. And The whole approach is to have a methodical stair-stepped approach to identifying the gap and then putting those resources in place to improve that capability over a period of time. So. It requires us to be analytical and to look at our threats and hazards and to identify what we're most susceptible to, and then to work with our membership to see how that affects them, specific to their healthcare facility. Because, as Lee said, we have hospitals all the way down to dialysis clinics to even EMS services that are exposed and potentially are vulnerable to different threats. So, how do we specifically address? training, exercise, equipment needs and gaps to those specific disciplines that are within this larger healthcare system. Because if one of those falls, it takes the rest of the healthcare system to pick it up. So our goal is to reduce the number of people that will fall through the cracks so that we have a more resilient healthcare system in the long run.
0: So along those lines about making sure that we fill in the gaps and the threats that are out there and making sure that the most vulnerable uh, among us are, are served during these disasters, What is the reason you think it's so important to make sure that your members are aware of the access and functional needs that people with disabilities or other people uh, may have? What are some of the things that you think is important for them to either know, like what are some of the common barriers that you've seen with access and functional needs, and that they need to be aware of?
2: Specifically to me, it's, it's an awareness-related issue. And, and not that people in the healthcare system aren't aware. I think what it comes down to is this is a growing population in the state of Florida. And also we recognize there are barriers to access to healthcare for this population. So what can we do from an educational standpoint, and a training standpoint, to educate our members in the healthcare sector about the realities of the population that you serve, uh, and what are those barriers for their access to healthcare? Uh, you know, as as you've stated many times, you know, something like twenty percent of the population has a disability or will be faced with a disability in their mm-hmm. lifetime. So how do we better navigate and provide services to this larger and ever-growing population sector while raising awareness for our healthcare members? I look at it as you're educating our members. We're not educating you about the healthcare sector. So I I look at you as the educator and teacher, and we're really benefiting from that.
0: How about you, Lee? What have you found in terms of the common access and functional needs that you may you know, have seen or maybe have questions that your members have come to you with or perhaps even have been improved along the way that are related to people with disabilities?
1: Well, I think, you know, as you talked about before with the social determinants of health, I think um, that is just increased. The challenges increase with that when you talk about times of disaster. So again, taking it from a preparedness perspective, I see it as twofold. Yes, we do see you all as educators to educate the rest of our members on how to better serve different communities. But you all also have done such a wonderful job through the Center for Independent Living of having expos and educational opportunities for the communities that you serve to help them better prepare. So because again, it it doesn't matter what the population is, preparedness is key. So the more prepared our entire community is for any kind of a disaster, the better the outcome is gonna be in the long run. You all are serving the community, you know your community and the education that you do, but you're also the educators for the healthcare community to better prepare them to manage any type of person that comes through their door.
0: Well, thank you, Lee. And one thing I want to add to that is uh, when we have interface with your members and, you know, again, we've done Lunch and Learns, we've done the summit that you all had and was able to do a workshop there. And yes, we've have these expos where we invite people with disabilities to come and participate in an event where we have emergency management and other healthcare professionals there that are, you know, giving very important information, speeches and panels and then tabling. And one of the things that we always come away with is we learn from you all too. Like this really seems to be a very big co-learning process where we're all learners in it and we all have our place to share the information that we know. And I'm always struck by the amount of experiences and wisdom that your members have and when we can really get in a conversation, be able to share those experiences and bounce things off of one another and really kind of really look at things from each other's perspectives and shoes. And and for me, it's that connecting and collaborating that seems to be one of the things that has really helped out the inertia that we've started and, and the momentum that we have in getting this out of the gate. And just it's inherent within your coalition that collaborations are so important. And being at a time where it seems like We're really needing to get people out of their silos and into more of a synergistic cooperation with one another. Um, Since you all are so steeped in this, Eric, I'm going to start with you. What do you find to be some critical or key elements that can help facilitate collaborations and or what are some of the barriers towards collaborations?
2: Well, I, the barriers are always easy to find and not wanting to collaborate. It's easy to work in your own silo and to continue that path forward on what you perceive. Unfortunately, that type of mindset usually uh, ends up being a failure because you need people to support you and try to implementation of your plan. So if you're writing your plans and implementing your plans in a silo, you're not doing a very good job for you or your organization. So I think emergency management as a background is a collaborative discipline and field because it requires collaboration to be successful in providing resources and support to support the operations in a disaster. So, all of the relationships you have up front, all of the training and exercise and conversations that you've had up front lead to a better disaster recovery and a better disaster operational outcome. So, I think it's just inherent in the nature of emergency management and in preparedness to build relationships. Meet those people you're going to depend on up front before the disaster happens and to have a common understanding of, uh, you know, what things they bring to the table that you may need. Again, you know, the federal government has looked at locals now since we've had so many disasters and they're really starting to say you need to look inwardly first to be able to manage disasters at the local level and then ask for us for help if it exceeds that so i think with that kind of messaging and even with coronavirus we've really seen a turn inwardly to start identifying what are those critical things that we have within our own community that we can start you know implementing and using versus just ordering the next thing from the federal government or from the state so that also helps to drive a lot of local relationships and frankly lastly everybody's been through coronavirus which has been a disaster for every single person and a statewide and national disaster for everyone. So I think everybody's been in a posture recently to share information to work together to identify strategies on how best to serve wherever the, the greatest needs at that time. You know, I think with COVID, the big upfront need was hospitals and capacities. And then we saw it transition to long-term care and, and elderly. And now it's through vaccinations. And uh, you know, so you've seen this evolution through the disaster of different partners that you bring to the table at different phases of the disaster. So again, all of those things that we're doing before the disaster lead to a more efficient and, and, and better recovery from a disaster.
0: That makes sense. So Lee, what, what do you have to say about what are some of the things that you found to help foster collaboration, and especially if people are in their you know, lanes and, and silos or whatever it may be? What, what are some of the things that you found useful into getting people to the table and to cooperate with one another?
1: Well, you know, there's an old saying in emergency management that you never want to be changing business cards at the site of a disaster scene. (laughs) So, um, you know, so it's it is all about that collaboration. The beauty of the healthcare coalition is it really is bringing together the non-traditional partners, the dialysis center with the federally qualified health center, with the center for independent living, and the. Doctor's office down the street. So it's bringing all these different people together to be able to talk, meet, and talk about their individual roles and responsibilities. And so you can learn from one another. We sponsor different trainings and tabletop exercises where we bring these people together and each group gets to talk about how they respond during a time of emergency. And it allows a lot of cross learning to happen. It opens up the eyes of some of our partners to say, wow, I didn't know that you did that, or I didn't know that was a challenge for you. We can actually help you with that. So it really does help with a lot of that collaboration and just partnering. And again, I keep saying it, but it makes us one big community.
0: about again, like uh, all the different community partners that are really needed in a disaster. And, and I think traditionally and typically, like you said, of course, we need our, our first responders. We need emergency management professionals to be staffing the state's emergency operations centers. We need people that are you know, in the healthcare settings to receive people that have been impacted by disasters. And to staff shelters, so we, you know, often as community health department staff or uh, Red Cross, and you know, people that are experts in these areas are so integral. And then also, like you're saying, perhaps you know, non-traditional partners nowadays could be one of the, you know, a very important key element to be bringing into this. So, what about the electric companies? What about uh, people that do housing? So Hurricane Michael, I mean, it was just devastating. I mean, there wasn't really much housing left. After that, so knowing how the housing system throughout the state could absorb displaced people, and so people that are in the affordable and accessible housing arena are needed. Oh, what about people who do transportation? You know, when an evacuation happens or, you know, people are needing who don't have good access to transportation, how do we fill that gap? Oh, or communication. Like you were saying, Lee, education is very important in communicating a message out that's very simple for people to understand. And if they need a sign language interpreter or closed captioning or to be able to do it at literacy levels or with using graphics. And so this involves you're, I guess, saying as non-traditional partners to really fill in those different pieces and places to come to the table. And I got to commend you all and really want to acknowledge you all for seeing that and understanding that. Coming from the public health field, again, uh, I was very much um, educated on the different diseases that were out there, the top causes that were out there, how to encourage people to be their own advocates when they you know went into a healthcare setting, to have the health literacy skills needed, how to promote healthy lifestyles for people. All these things were steeped in, but not so much on... Well, how do we address getting people educated and graduated from high school? How do we get people employed? How do we get people housed? How do we provide transportation? How do we do all these other kind of things that ultimately we're finding, you know, these social determinants of health are the one of the most impactful in terms of those health outcomes? So I want to commend you all for really inviting people to the table, like Centers for Independent Living and other agencies that really help to fill the gaps in those areas and then get to know. Uh, the emergency management professionals, the healthcare providers, the first responders that are there and who uh, more often than not, what I found are seeking to network with organizations like ourselves because we provide a good nexus point to connect with the community. Nearly everyone that I've met through your healthcare coalition is super eager to develop relationships ahead of time with the community of people who have disabilities. But where do you find them? Where are they? And so often organizations like ours will know where they are. They come to receive services from us and to have that collaboration together. From what I found, one of the most important things is connecting to the community and connecting to the community of people who are most vulnerable well ahead of time in the blue skies for preparation. I have found to be one of the jewels of our collaborations to be able to bring that together and and to be able to do that. So I, I want to acknowledge you all and thank you all for, again, inviting us to come along and be part of this coalition to really help address some of the needs of the some of the most vulnerable among us. I really appreciate that of you all.
1: Absolutely. And we appreciate all that you all do. And, you know, I think we have learned that um, you have a wonderful organization, but you also have branches across the state. So um, you have been great about bringing together all the different centers for independent living around the state and pulling them together to help with some of our educational opportunities. And then I think that this podcast series will be able to spread across the state too, to help people bringing those different communities together in a planning perspective.
0: Yeah. So like you have uh, seven regions, regional healthcare coalitions, is that right? That covers collectively all...
1: There are 10 healthcare coalitions.
0: And and that covers all 67 counties in the state, correct?
1: Every county has a healthcare coalition. Okay,
0: and we have 15 different centers for independent living that have catchments areas that connect all 67. And I think we've looked at our maps and where they overlay, and you know which centers you know, will have their hands in different healthcare coalitions. Like ours has, you know, two or three that overlap within our areas, and it's been wonderful. Like you said, Eric, we've been able to because of our collaboration here. Other healthcare coalitions have been saying, "Oh, what do you have going on over there? What's happening? Oh, we want some of that." And so we've been able to bring other centers for independent living into this equation, other healthcare coalitions into this equation, and we're now in that phase of, of really connecting the dots. And one of the things that I found useful, and perhaps your members uh, listening to this might find useful and want to reach out to centers of doing, is in their you know live simulated training exercises that. Often we'll use people that are portraying victims of a certain disaster, whether it's a natural disaster, or a you know, plane accident, you know, biohazard, whatever it may be. Our center and other centers have been able to get people with real disabilities to be the ones that are portraying the victims. So it's not somebody that's pretending to be in a wheelchair or pretending to be deaf or pretending to be blind, but it's real people that have those disabilities and are working in those trainings and often When evaluated, those trainings and the debriefing and the after action happens, it seems like some of the most uh, important lessons learned have occurred when engaging those actors, those victims, you know, that have been there.
1: I agree. And, you know, I think the learning happens on both sides. When someone participates as a victim, you know, for an exercise, that is certainly a learning experience for that person as well. And I know that I have done it myself. And so, you know, the actor can then take those lessons learned back to their families and their friends and their communities. And so that again, just helps that learning process continue. So the first responders are learning because that's it's their training exercise for them. But I do think that those that are portraying the victims also have a learning experience. And I think it's very important. I
0: 100% agree. The co-learning that goes on, I find to be just captivating. There's no finish line to that, I, I, I don't believe. And, and so with that being said, Eric, what is your vision uh, for the future of emergency preparedness and your hope for where we are heading? Again, I don't think there's probably a finish line to this work, but at least for what you see in your career, in your tenure, what are some of the things that you would like to see come to fruition?
2: Well, I think we actually have some things that Lee and I discussed. We planted a lot of little seeds in places when the coalition initially started. And we are now starting to see some of those things become bigger things. So, you know, I'll touch on two things. I, I guess I'll turn to Lee for the, uh, an update on our Florida Healthcare Association uh, grant that we've received, but uh, we also this last year have started to go after additional funding to start addressing some of these disaster vulnerabilities that we know we have. The state of Florida this last year put out $20 million to produce plans related to vulnerabilities across the state uh, associated to Hurricane Irma. So one thing that we recognize our area is that uh, we are highly susceptible to storm surge as well as overland flooding from that Irma event. And what can we do to better prepare ourselves related to developing a plan that may be eligible to that money. So we actually submitted a grant request this last year and we found out we were funded by the state for a three year program to look specifically at the North Florida resiliency for the health and medical lifeline. So we will be doing in year one, starting this next year, a whole lot of geographic information systems analysis. Where is surge across our region? Where do we have overland flooding for 100 and 500 year flooding events? You know, Where are we susceptible in the healthcare system if we have a large event? And then that'll be followed by a couple of years of doing planning related to infrastructure improvements, um, as well as clinical care service delivery. And then hopefully in year three, we can start going after both public and private funding, and also focus some of our coalition-related dollars towards mitigating those gaps that we've identified through this entire process of vulnerability to healthcare sector. So that's one example of we threw an application out there because we saw vulnerability to our healthcare sector. The state believes that uh, you know this is a critical area that we need to address here in Northeast Florida, and they were willing to fund us in this process. So something that came out of nothing, and now will drive the focus for part of our program for the next three years, which will be resiliency planning, and then starting to tie uh, you know dollars to these mitigation plans that we're going to have in place. So that's just one example. Uh, I'm sure Lee can talk about the FHA-related money as well as uh, you know kind of the programmatic work that is on tap for the next few years.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So um, we have entered into a partnership with the Florida Hospital Association, FHA, um, to do some work for infectious disease. You know, this is a post COVID funding source. So we will be looking at ways that we can assist the healthcare system in better preparing for highly infectious diseases, whether it be another COVID type event or, you know, a flu type event or an Ebola or something you know, exotic. So we're, we will be, this is a three-year project. So we're going to be working on that planning, but primarily looking at how we can equip our healthcare system for things that will assist with highly infectious diseases. We have been working just prior to COVID. We did infectious disease best practice workshops. We brought all of our partners together and It literally was the day before the world shut down for COVID. Um, So we were able to bring those partners together, talk about best practices for infectious disease. So it was very timely, um, not intentionally. While we have been um, responding to COVID, we've been working on a plan based on some of those best practices. So um, we're releasing our infectious disease plans Um, And our supply, we're looking at supply chain mitigation strategies too, that, uh, you know, because the supply chain was such a challenge during this last event. So we have, we're working on some of those types of documents. And then in the upcoming years, we are tasked with looking at um, what we would do in different surge type events. In the past, we've been working with pediatric surge if we had some kind of an event that caused us to have a very large number of pediatric patients. Um, There are some pediatric hospitals, but patients would go to all hospitals if there were large numbers of people. This upcoming year, we're looking at a burn event because there are very few burn facilities around the country. So if we had some type of an emergency in our region that caused us to have a large number of burn events, what is the planning that we can do bringing our partners together to be able to better handle a surge from that kind of an event? So we're taking preparedness from lots of different perspectives, you know, the big medical surge events that can overwhelm the system um, down to, you know, your, I hate to call it a normal routine hurricane response, but a normal, hurricane, you know, hurricane response. So we try and look at preparedness from the healthcare sector from all perspectives and plan from that perspective.
0: Well, I I love how both of you are really hitting on, I would say, considered to be the, the, the two largest events that have happened to this state in the last three, four years. So Hurricane Irma, Statewide impact. That thing was a monster, and and I think everything from the Keys to to deep out west in the Panhandle was activated. I think like nearly shelter, every shelter, every response team. I mean, it, it, instead of being like a, a regional p- impact across the, you know in the state, it was across the entire state. So to get the award that you got there, Eric uh, and Lee, and to to be addressing. Okay, when this happens again, when we have a statewide impact that stretches our resources and really tests those vulnerabilities that we've already seen, how can we shore that up? And then uh, Lee, for, for you all to be looking at, well, you know, we had this event and, and we saw the surges that happened, overwhelm the system. How do we plan for the next time this could happen? And particularly, uh, like you mentioned pediatrics, like you, who's to say, you know, in a, like the 1918 uh, pandemic, wherein, you know, that did impact young, young people and and so well this time around it, maybe that wasn't you know one of the main risk factors um who's not to say that for the next time it wouldn't be you know one of the groups that could be the ones that are at highest risk and you know how is our system going to be able to absorb you know a surge like that and so you all are like the tip of the spear uh for those things that you know have been of biggest impact and and it's just amazing that when people think about well you know what, what are we going to do and this and the other it's just a relief to me, at least, that to, to know that there's people in the seats that you all occupy really paying your wisdom, skills, time, effort into paying attention to these things and, and making us better for the next time around. And, and you're envisioning, too. Um, I've mentioned to you all before, but I think our listeners should know, in the fall of 2019, at the Northeast Healthcare Coalition Summit, you had your keynote speaker was, was it, Dr. Barry?
2: John Barry. John Barry. Dr.
0: John Barry. Who wrote the uh, the Spanish influenza? Yeah. The
2: great, the great influenza.
0: The great influenza. You know, I got to participate uh, in a panel discussion uh, with him and you know, have seen him on all these national talk shows and television talking about his expertise as it relates to that. So again, fall of 2019, you know, and no one had at that time heard of COVID, but then in a few months later we all know what happened. You know, not only are you learning from the past, but you seem to have some, a little bit of ESP for the future. So I'm just saying, pay attention to you two uh, if you're a listener. <laughs>
1: Tony, I will tell you too, in 2017 at um, that a similar event, we had an author named sherry fink who wrote the book five days at memorial which was the story of memorial hospital in new orleans post hurricane katrina and you know they lost all power and it, it's it is a very interesting book an interesting read and that was right before we had matthew and irma so wow. i it, you know not that disasters follow us but um we do have some kind of a premonition. I don't know what it is.
0: Yeah, it, there, there's something there. You all are antennas for something out there. So everyone, pay attention to Eric and Lee and prepare <laughs> accordingly. So uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna round us out uh, here to what I think is a really important question because you all, uh, from my perspective, are showing yourselves to be just phenomenal leaders. Uh, and, and bring to the table just immense amounts of value and virtue. So I wanna ask you, um, what, what do you all believe that are really important values or virtues that uh, leaders need to have during these times? Yeah, I imagine other people that might be either in roles that you are in or in other roles where leadership could be a a very important key. So what do you find that some of the key attributes that have at least made you successful or that you try to embody uh, in your roles as leaders? So uh, Eric, I'm gonna throw that one over to you.
2: Oh, that's a scary question. Uh, I think it's honestly taking the time to sit down and think about what you're trying to accomplish, both from a now, a short-term and a long-term point of view, Uh, and then starting to build a strategy on how you would like to get there. I think many people find I want to get to point A, but they haven't built the strategy or plan to get to point A. They think it's just going to happen. So I think being a good program manager and being a good leader is number one, having the roadmap to accomplish the things that you're expected to accomplish, but also being able to empower your partners and people with you to facilitate uh, you know, getting to that goal. And whether that's one person or 10 people, it's just having that common vision and being able to describe how to get there and Uh, and to have buy-in from your folks and to believe in it yourself uh, that that's what you're trying to accomplish.
0: I like how you said that. Um, For me, what you're saying there is to understand where you're at in the now and then have that vision of where you want to go and building that roadmap in between. And uh, maybe you can help me out with this one. So how do you optimize the integration of being here and being present, but also having uh, an eye on the future. For me, I find, you know, zooming in big picture, uh, zooming in small picture, zooming out big picture. Um, sometimes I can be stuck in one of those two places. Do you, do you have a strategy for optimizing the the, the zooming out, zooming in the, ma- the macro, the micro uh, yeah. at all? And as a program planner, I'm, I'm, I'm very interested
2: i think program planning i think you have to take the big picture and then zoom in uh if you do the opposite you're going to get lost in what you're trying to accomplish without having uh, an understanding of what the big picture objectives are so i always try to prefer to, to to zoom out and look at it its entirety and then zoom on in the other part of this is also not getting locked into a decision it's a roadmap it's a guide you have to be able to as a good leader to take in new information and be able to adapt and amend your plans or what you're trying to accomplish based off of the resources that you have, the people that you have surrounding you, and you have to be able to adapt and overcome. So those people that make a line in the sand and are unwilling to change, even to changing environments, are going to be less successful leaders, and they're going to lose the buy-in of those people that they're trying to lead.
0: Yeah, adaptability is huge and, and being rigid, you know, things just snap and break. So the yes. adaptability, I love that. Yeah, yeah. your um, plan is
2: a framework to operate within. It is not a linear A, B, yeah. C, D,
0: E. Yeah, things in life don't seem to happen in a linear fashion. Much more cyclical, I'm finding. And, and I love how you uh, opened it with, it, it reminded me, I think, of a phrase that Stephen Cubby um, had you know, popularized with, start with the end in mind. And, and working backwards from there. So uh, they're very wise. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Lee, how about you? What are some of the values and virtues that are needed in leadership or in the field that you, you are in in order for us to be uh, successful?
1: So I think, as Eric said, I mean, for me, it is being able to see the big picture. Not everybody sees the big picture. So I think that is key to in a, having a leadership role. Um, but it's also knowing that you don't, know it all. It is bringing in the people that are the specialists, the subject matter experts, and listening to them, and being able to synthesize all of that information in that long-term goal. Um, I totally agree with Eric of, of having that long-term goal and understanding, but knowing that you do have to adapt along the way. But as a leader, you do have to know that sometimes decisions do have to be made. So, you know, you do have to, to make those decisions and go forward with it and you know taking the, the responsibility for that
0: i love what you said about not knowing what you don't know and there's so much power in knowing that you don't know things and and then going into a space where we can be open to those who may have some information that could really benefit us i i find that to be very important often humility is needed to get there, but there, there's so much to know. We can't know everything. And knowing that we don't know, is very powerful. It's very, very powerful. Absolutely. And all of Absolutely. this. Well, it, it is a pleasure to always connect with you all. This is our first time doing a podcast together. I would like to think it's not going to be our last time and just want to you know sign off here by acknowledging that I am so thankful that our state, that our region has the you know type of people um, in the positions and roles that you are in to looking out for the, the greater good of our society, our community. And it allows me to rest better at night knowing that you all are doing what you do. And, and I can't thank you enough. You all aren't celebrated widely enough. You are our living heroes that need to be acknowledged and celebrated along the way because the value that you all bring is beyond the words that I could even articulate. And, and so, you know, thankful that you opened the door. Thank you for inviting us to the table. Thank you for listening and allowing us to integrate and participate in the healthcare coalitions that you are just phenomenal leaders in.
1: Well, we want to thank you for always being willing to participate and bring us ideas of ways that we can reach different communities across the state. So um, we appreciate the partnership very much.
0: Well, thank you, Lee. Thank you, Eric. And until next time, onward and upward. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. This is brought to you by the Center for Independent Living of North Central Florida in collaboration with the North Central Florida Healthcare Coalition. We are committed to ensuring that all professionals and volunteers and anyone who is interested in learning and doing more to meet the access and functional needs of people with disabilities. We are committed to ensuring that people with disabilities are ready before, during, and after disasters to ensure that they can continue to live independently. If you wanna learn more about the Center for Independent Living, the Independent Living Network, the North Central Florida Healthcare Coalitions, or the Regional Health Coalitions throughout the state of Florida, please look into the information that is linked into the show notes throughout all these episodes and the web platforms that are provided. Thank you.